Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1973, and your mother sews socks that smell. The movie, The Exorcist. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and welcome to the official start of Scaretober. That's right. Scaretober as Unspooled delves back into horror films and we're kicking off with The Exorcist. A movie that people have been asking for since we started the show, that we have been asking for since we started the show back in season one in Saw French Connection. And we were like, what is this William Friedkin doing on here? W.T. William Friedkin. I was going to try to make his initials into w- what the WTF and I just really lost my thread. Yeah, yeah, I should try. Uh, what the... William the Exorcist Friedkin is this nonsense. You have to go what the French du- connection what, is go, on this. What the <laughs> you have to say WTWF. WTWF. Well, whatever it is, we've been saying that this is the movie that should be on the list and not French Connection. And now we're finally gonna get to do it. Was this actually kicked off the list or was it never on the list? I believe it was never on the list. That is so incredibly surprising. Well, Amy, I think this is a great way to start off this series. And to continue this series, we want to hear from you. We want to hear you on the Discord, on our Twitter, on Instagram. What movies do you think are good for Scaretober? We want you to have a voice in the show. And you will if you go on to our Discord. Right now, it's living at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's a great section there. Every week, we have threaded conversations about the movies that we cover. And the dialogue there has been Phenomenal. So we look and forward to... And I will to, say, uh, bonus points of when we hear your voice, you do it backwards. Oh, yeah. Wow. That would be that would be <laughs> impressive. Um, well, Amy, should we just get into it? Yeah. Yeah. I think I hear something knocking upstairs. Oh, my God. The year is 1973. I'm not a crook, declares Richard Nixon. Roe v. Wade rules that the Constitution will protect a woman's right to choose abortion. An oil crisis begins when Saudi Arabia proclaims an embargo and the price of oil skyrockets by 300%, thus opening the door in the American auto market for smaller, gas-friendly Japanese cars. And U.S. troops withdraw from Vietnam, ending the war with a signing of peace agreements. Theaters are playing Serpico, American Graffiti, Ganja and Hess, and today's film, 
The Exorcist. Amy, tell us who's in it, who made it, what's it about? Give me the deets. The Exorcist. It is based on the novel by William Peter Blatty that sold 13 million copies and was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for 17 weeks. Blatty wrote the script for the film that was directed by William Friedkin as his follow-up to The French Connection, that Gene Hackman mean cop car chase movie that won him Oscars for both Best Picture and Best Director. Hollywood did not have a lot of faith that their best director, Winner Friedkin, was choosing to make a movie about a 12-year-old possessed girl named Regan, played by the one and only Linda Blair, and her agonized mother, the great Ellen Burstyn. Now, her mother turns to a series of doctors and ultimately two priests to find a cure for her daughter's ranting and thrashing and cursing and vomiting and floating and head spinning. Um, The two priests who show up are played by Max von Sydow and Jason Miller. And nearly 50-year-old spoiler alert here, neither priest survives the film. Which means that The Exorcist is a film where Frieden leaves it up to the audience to decide for themselves whether or not God or devil won this battle. Take a listen. Chris, doctors. was released on December 26, 1973, making it a Christmas film and a birthday present for the baby Jesus. Uh, The movie cost $10 million, which people at the time thought was way too much money. They were freaked out it cost this much money. Uh, But it made $112 million worldwide, then became the first horror film nominated for Best Picture. And then with all of the re-releases over the last five decades, they have calculated that this film in today's money has made a staggering $1.8 billion dollars. That is huge. Um, now, what was in the zeitgeist that weekend of December 26, 1973, when the movie came out? It was actually an ode to loss and love and pain and family. Uh, it is a song by the artist Jim Croce that he wrote three years earlier, back in 1970, when his wife found out that they were going to have a baby. Uh, Jim Croce and his wife had been a musical team, but when their son was born, he realized he had, a, he had to get more serious about his career. He went on the road to make more money for his family. And on September 1973, he died in a plane crash, after which this song that he wrote for his child hit number one on the charts posthumously. It's called Time in a Bottle. And side note, the song's producer was inspired to use the harpsichord in the song after watching a horror movie. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do Is to save every day That is a beautiful song, and it has been in my head ever since I found out this connection. Um, Also, I would say, you know, not only is this a song about like kind of that seems like a, a song where a voice, a spirit is reaching out from the beyond to talk about 
life and death and love. Uh, this song actually has a connection to our last uh, miniseries on on summer blockbuster films, because you might remember that uh, it was sung by none other than Mr. Chow in Hangover 2. If I could save time in a battle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away just to spend them with you. Are you guys seriously this calm? Relax, Stuart. It's classic switcheroo. I give him money, he gives us daddy. All right, now I think we should exercise and purge the hangover from our memory. It is not going up to space. We're in a whole new season. Let's get going, man. Well, you know, Amy, I think the first thing to talk about with this movie is the fact that I was completely wrong. Last week, uh, I said to you, I think I'm not going to like The Exorcist because I assumed that I had seen the Exorcist. I Wait, have what? Ne- yeah, I never <gasps> saw this movie. I've what? never seen it. I think what I have done is merged together a lot of different things, like meme culture, a movie that was near and dear to my heart called Repossessed with Leslie Nielsen by the director of Meatballs 4, which actually starred Linda Blair. I've seen a million sketches. I've seen SNL sketches. I did a sketch on Human Giant about The Exorcist without having seen The Exorcist. So when it came to watching this movie, I was like, I don't know if I get this movie. It just feels like boring 70s. Like, is it scary? Is it not? Like, I had a real hesitation to it. I just felt like it was like, yeah, I get it, but I'm not going to like it. And I am... So wrong. I'm so happy to be forced into watching this. I loved this movie and it legitimately scared me. I did not know the priest die at the end. I was shocked to find that out. Like legit, like, wait, I rewound it. I was like, wait, 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 no, hold on. What did I miss? Did I miss something? I, this movie was as close to a first viewing as possible because even the Like the head spinning. Yes, I know. The peeing in the living room. Yes, I know. But in context, in the pacing of this film, it was (laughs) 10 times more terrifying. Um, And oh, I just totally fell in love with this movie that I really chalked up to uh, just maybe like a boring 70s horror that we're supposed to like but it's like it's fine but it's not great like and uh yeah so i just want to step out and say that last week i was completely off the mark and uh and i really do believe that the the memification of this movie has not wrecked my experience but tampered with what i think this movie actually is and how scary this movie actually is and how uh powerful it is it's a very different film than the way that you see it parodied. Wow. I mean, the power of cinema compels you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that. Um, as a brief uh, detour, this has been a film that I actually saw fairly young in, in high school. And it has really uh, grown up with me. I think Mm. I feel like I've changed as I've watched this movie. I've seen different things in it because when I first watched this movie in high school, I was watching for two things. Like one, I had just gotten back from doing um, like a summer college program. You know, those things they send you to college campuses for like a month in the summer to take college classes. Yeah. Yeah. My mom was always making me do those things. She sent me to Georgetown 
And one night at the dorms, me and like this kind of disreputable kid like snuck out of our dorms. We went to the exorcist stairs and I hadn't seen the movie yet or I would have been more scared. And if you watch this movie really closely, there's a moment when you're kind of staring out, looking at the stairs from the top and you can see there's this little concrete ledge Mm -hmm. uh, that's like above the bottom stair, but the height of the top stair. And you can walk across the stairs at the top. We like climbed out there and like sat on this ledge above the exorcist stairs and like hung out. And the next day he was kicked out of the program because they found weed in his dorm. But it is like this treasured moment for me. And after that, I came home and watched The Exorcist for the first time. And I was watching it with that mentality of, oh, I'm going to be so scared, man. Like it's the scariest movie ever made. And when you watch this movie, you know, in the present, it and you're a teenager like I was, you're just distracted by what I would say is the pretty, pretty bad makeup job uh, on Linda Blair that it feels like bad at the time. And I was like, this isn't scary. What's wrong with people? I don't understand. And now as I have watched the movie probably seven or eight times since then, I have realized that it's that I was judging it against the standard of expecting a different worse movie, a movie that is like, here's your scares. Here's why the devil shows up. Here's what's going on. Da-da-da, we're a devil movie where this is actually, I would say Friedkin didn't consider himself making a horror film. He considered himself making a movie about faith and doubt. Oh, here, I'll, I'll let him talk about it. The Exorcist, as a non-believer or a cynic, I approached it as a believer. And to f- direct the film like that, I had to separate myself and my own emotions from the act itself and take the actors into a mental environment where they could separate themselves from what was being portrayed. Blatty and I never talked about a horror film or effects in a horror film. To me, it's more of a chamber piece than spectacle. Most of the stuff takes place in one room in the little girl's bedroom. We set out to tell this story that deals with the mystery of faith and good and evil, both extreme sacrifice and goodness and love. And yeah, like, as he said, like, this movie to me becomes something bigger than a horror film when I watch it. It is is a chilling look at how crazy things just happen to your life and how, how you grapple with it. And will people listen? And can you do anything about it? And and it feels so much even bigger than the devil, which is a weird thing to say. Well, I think it kind of reaches into a core aspect of something we can all identify with. Obviously, we are not all being possessed by the devil, but each one of us has problems in our lives at certain points that are hard to convey to the outside world or people will look at us in a moment, catch us in an act or a reaction that feels bigger or weirder than they are used to. And they can kind of be like, oh, that person is crazy. That person is angry or whatever they want to label you with. And this idea of, no, but there is something going on behind that. We may not see behind those doors. And I think there's something really interesting about this all taking place in the house and what goes on behind the closed doors of a celebrity you know, which is a really interesting idea in this film, too. Like the the lead character, the mother in the film, is a very famous actress. And there are gossip magazines where, you know, she is being photographed. People love her. 
And this idea, and they don't really like go that deep into the celebrity culture, but I do believe there is that, that root of, you know, how can you explain without people thinking you're insane or how do you bring people into your life? And in that way, I think this film is universal. Yeah. Like when I watch this film today, and I want to say, by the way, like as an aside, the idea of making her, you know, a celebrity actress, I think is so is such an interesting choice on the part of like Blatty and mm-hmm. in, uh, in his book, because it's not just trying to tell a story of like, here's your everyday mom, you know, right. like your everyday mom, usually wearing too much makeup with perfectly curled hair, the way the people are in a lot of modern exorcism movies. And this horrible thing just happens to her. Like it adds this dimension that I think Chris, you know, Ellen Burstyn comes into the film as a person kind of used to getting her way. Like you see that in her first real interaction with like her housekeeper. She's a woman who lives with housekeepers. She's used to kind of telling people what to do, getting the response she wants. Uh, Here in her opening scene, like the first words you hear her say, which I think are beautiful, are I love you to her daughter. And then she's chewing out Carl because she thinks that there's rats. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Carl. Oh, Carl, we've got rats in the attic. You better get some traps. Traps? Mm-hmm. Great so. I think it's clean. All right, then we've got clean rats. No, no, no rats. I just heard them, Carl. Maybe plumbing. Yeah, or maybe rats. Now, will you just get the traps? Yes, I go now. Well, don't go now, Carl. The stores aren't open yet. Obviously. They're closed. It's a, this movie sets a tone, right? That she usually gets what she wants, and here is something where she is just absolutely stymied. And I think it adds something to it, like the sense of paranoia when she, when, when Karis comes up to her on the street, when she's bruised and she's supposed to meet him and she thinks he's just asking for an autograph and she's just embarrassed and has these bruises and wants him to go away. Like it's not present in every scene, her celebrity status, but it affects things. I love that scene on the bridge. Ellen Burstyn in this movie is so, it's such a layered performance. You get to see so many sides of her and at different points, it's not like, she arcs. It's like throughout the film with different interactions and different people, you feel these different versions, whether it's helpless with the doctors or, you know, incredibly uh, aggressive with the butler when she thinks that he has left the cross in the room. Like, you know, the way that they they show her constantly shifting in power throughout this entire movie and ultimately being powerless to anything until she truly asks for help. I mean, that's, she's asking for help, but I guess gives over to it. I mean, because I I imagine that that is a, that is a part of this is like her character bringing in this, this insane idea. Cause they, they treat it in the movie. Like this is an insane idea to do an exorcism is an insane idea. And, and it's really more psychological than it is anything else, but she is opening herself in a way to something that is not a traditional medical treatment. I don't know. Like, what did you think about that? Is that part of her character's journey to do this? Or is it she wants to help her child the whole way through? Well, you know what really I think is remarkable about this film Mm -hmm. is, you know, I am a great champion of horror as a genre. But I think one of the things that a lot of horror films do very bad that makes me write off most of them is that they don't care about their characters and their Mm -hmm. inner life. And they're a film about the devil or an exorcism, but they're not a film about the life around uh, the people who are being affected by it. You know, like it's like, look at this cool thing happened to this body. 
um, they almost treat actors and characters like spirits to just sort of inhabit and torture. And this movie, so much of it, almost the first, like, I don't know, two thirds it feel, of the movie, it feels like, is about being a mother, feeling that something is wrong and nobody will listen to you. You know, scene after scene, this this movie spends so much time of her going to doctors, doctors telling her that nothing is happening. It's a movie about not being believed. You know, it, this is a movie about faith and about a character who's not being believed that something is wrong with her daughter. Like, I, I love all of these scenes that she has with real doctors, like this one, where they try to diagnose uh, vegan for the first time. Well, it's a symptom type of disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain. In the case of your daughter in the temporal lobe, it's up here in the lateral part of the brain. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations, and usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion? The shaking of the bed. That's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Oh, no, 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 that was no spasm. Look, I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking the whole thing. With me on it. Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. The way that he cuts her off, like, this isn't about a bed. This is about your daughter's brain. Right. He's, like, ignoring everything that she is saying. He's not listening to her. You know, it, and he's diagnosing based on what he thinks is happening without actually listening to it, without listening. Those doctor scenes are really interesting. And now, as I've become a person who advocates for people that are not me, my children, and you go in to see a doctor, it's a very interesting perspective because you are, and you have to speak for someone else. You have to kind of give the lay of the land of what your child is going through. And it could be as simple as a cold. It doesn't have to be, you know, an exorcism. But I think there is this feeling that a lot of parents have which is, well, you don't actually understand what's going on here. Like, what actually is happening is this. And I think a lot of parents will justify or sweep things under the rug because they feel like they have a better knowledge of a of a child, and I think that other people can maybe see it in a clearer way. Um, but when you're struggling with a, a child that needs help and you can't communicate that, that's a very frustrating thing. I mean, as a really just as a statement on being a parent and getting someone to understand what it is when it's not black and white. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. As kind of a backstory on Freakin and the way that he works, like he has said very much that he believes in making the kind of films where he doesn't tell the audience what to think. He really likes leaving room for audiences to have their own interpretations. He, I feel like this is a film that I would describe as having 
a lot of air in it. You know, like a mm-hmm. lot of little moments for you to kind of connect to, relate to people detouring, talking about how they like their scotch, you know, blowing eyelashes off of off of Regan. Like there's a lot of little moments of life in here where I think he gives you a second to kind of be with characters and pause. And he's not telling you what to think. He's just giving you moments in people's lives to live with. But I think what that what that results in in this film is a horror movie where there's so much to kind of pull pull away from and like interpret. Because I don't think I started watching it as a movie that could touch on misogyny until like fairly recently. I don't even think this movie is consciously about misogyny, but I can't help but feel a little bit of it when you see shots of like Chris surrounded in a room of all doctors. Like I think there's like 12 doctors. Two of them are maybe women. They're all like looking at her. She's in the center of the frame, outnumbered by far, trying to get people to listen to her, trying to get people to believe what she sees. And they're not capable of doing it. There's like a limit to their belief. And it's not necessarily because she's a woman, but you could put that together if you wanted to, because you're also cutting in scenes of like, Karis going to visit his mother in a mental hospital, scenes of women who are also considered crazy and locked away and put away and people thinking her daughter has mental problems, like people thinking that women are wrong or crazy when something else is going on. Well, I think it maybe speaks to this larger issue that, you know, I'm saying when you're a parent, but, you know, traditionally, mothers are probably in this role of caregiver, like in the very general stereotypical view. And so there is something about, well, you're just a mother and mothers are women and women are going to be prone to being more hysterical. Hence, you see a little bit of that misogyny seeping in. Um, And I think that that is something that I was connecting with on this viewing. I also just want to talk about what you just mentioned about the silences and the pacing. This movie truly doesn't get to the exorcism until about 27 minutes left in the film. Like the last half hour is the exorcism. That's really where a lot of the very memeable moments are. Like, yes, there are flashes of the possession, you know, before, but it takes about a solid hour to establish this world. And I think this movie is good because of that, because you can actually sit with these characters, understand who they are. It's so much more fulfilling to watch the priest's journey because we have his backstory. We see the way that Chris interacts with her daughter, the way her house is run, like this laying of the groundwork before you really get into something that is ultimately very unbelievable I think makes you feel more connected to every character involved. It makes everything a little bit more scary. It, and that's how I felt. Like I felt truly, you know, horrified that the scene with the crucifix, you know, uh, when you see that it, it is like we've seen worse. We can all agree with that. We've seen worse. We've seen better effects, scarier shit. But what makes this movie hold up is I think the grounding in reality that this movie really has, like we really spend a lot of time to make you live in this world before they upend it. And I think that that, like I was really thinking about that as far as pacing and, and style and tone and something that I think a lot of horror films lately have decided to ape. Yeah, no, I think it is a remarkably acted film. 
I mean, I don't want to rag on this film too much, but you know, Malignant. Did you say Malignant? No, the it's going to be an upcoming How Did This Get Made? Uh, so we'll be seeing it okay. very soon. Well, I won't spoil much for you, but there is a thing that happens in my brain as a critic where you sit down and you start a movie and you look at the acting performances. And I always talk about it in terms of hair. The hair is just way too perfect for every scene, everything that's happening in this movie. The hair is just phony. The actress doesn't look like a real person. They cast somebody like pretty in a strange, like pretty in a way that doesn't feel human pretty. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like pretty in a way where you look like you stepped out of a TV show. Pretty. Like, and you cast people like that. And I'm a little piece of me immediately shuts off and I'm like, oh, nothing in here is real. I will watch this film on a different level. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The Exorcist is a film that feels very real where like Ellen Burstyn feels like a very real character. Absolutely believable. And like everything that happens to her, you care about because you're not watching it happen to just like person with like perfectly curled hair. So it doesn't matter because you that hair always tells you that nothing bad will really happen to this person. I totally get what you're saying. I think it's the the Hollywood version of a horror movie, right? Like these people are lived in characters and we're seeing them in moments of despair. Like that's what I really love about the exorcism. There's a few moments of just like, okay, let's uh, reset. Cause that was pretty fucked up. Right. Like it's like, and, and that like, you don't see that that much, you know, like that, that's a normal human interaction. I, I know it's silly to even say I'm blown away by Jason Miller. Uh, who is the the priest, the priest that we follow for the majority of the film, uh, you know, in regards to uh, Ellen Burstyn's character. He, you know, but you see him like running on the track and when he comes off the track, like he's huffing and puffing like, and we're catching these characters in these moments that make you believe that they're real people. And I think that, you know, to see people in grief, to see people drinking it, like even when, when uh, the priest is drinking alone, that Chivas Regal, like, there's a darkness there that you don't normally see in films where people are getting drunk to get fucked up, right? Like there's, I don't know. I think that there's something about allowing you to see the ugly side of everyone. We all have ugly sides, right? Or or non-Hollywood sides. And I think, again, that entry point, that connection, and I go back to Babadook, I think they do that uh, exceptionally well as well, to see people in the moments they don't want you to see. And I think that makes you want them to win more than anything. No, I agree. And I, there's something in the way that I think the sound design works on top of that, that I think is so smart because, you know, in these early scenes, like I think Friedkin sets up so much of what's happening really quick, really efficiently. You know, the movie opens, you know, in Iraq with this, like uh, with a call to prayer, you know, so mm-hmm. that the very first words you're hearing are, God is great. You set this tone of spirituality, of an ancientness, like a kind of heaviness that descends. That opening image of like the sun being in black and white and then turning red and yellow, turning into color. There's this great documentary, by the way. Um, It's called Leap of Faith. uh, And it's about William Friedkin making this movie. It's wonderful. Um, It's on Shutter right now. And he talks about like making choices like that, like changing the color of the sun as being like intuitive. He 
uh, to bring it back to like Inception and Dreams, which I feel like we've been talking about forever, he seems like a director who operates in that way too. Like he he gets images or ideas in his head and he doesn't know exactly what he they mean, but he puts them in the film being unable to explain them and yet knowing they will have some sort of resonance. Like he talks about it here in this part of the documentary. I believe that we all have such inexpressible, unexplainable dreams that may come from somewhere else that sometimes manifest themselves as deja vu. There are so many images and moments in life that exist in some time warp or in some other place that are randomly selected by somebody else. We don't just dream about stuff that's happened or is happening to us. We dream about things from elsewhere and where are they from. And that is the most important discovery I made as a filmmaker, that I could take something from the life of one character and put it into the dream life of another. All right, I know I'm all over the board, but like where I'm starting to go with that is like, we get we get back from Iraq where we see um, Max von Sydow uh, find the original Pazuzu, even though they don't ever say the name Pazuzu. You meet Ellen Burstyn acting, you see her walking home and they do that thing, which I never thought about this, but she's walking home. You hear the song Tubular Bells and you're seeing her walk through the fall. You're seeing kids run by in Halloween costumes, you know, also setting a little bit of a spooky tone. You see the nuns walking by in slow motion and this music is playing. And I was thinking, oh my God, I wonder how much of this actually John Carpenter lifted for the scenes of watching Laurie Strode walk home in Halloween, because it's really similar. But where I'm driving to with all of this and taking the longest way to get there is she sees she sees Jason Miller talking and talking about losing his faith. You know, and we get that little piece of his personality that's so important right there. Like the number one thing we need to know about him is he's a priest wrestling with faith. And so that it doesn't seem phony that that's what we're hearing. Friedkin interrupts that conversation with an airline jet that blots it out. And that Mm. airline jet is where I've been trying to go to in this like rambling digression, because I feel like that airline jet is one of those sound details that makes even this coincidental thing of her walking by the priest who will be in her house, who's wrestling with faith, make it, it that sound choice makes it feel so real. I'm just gonna play it, I have to play it. I mean, there's not a day in my life that I don't feel like a fraud. I mean, priests, doctor, lawyers, I've talked to them all. I don't know anyone who hasn't felt that. But I love the sound design in this movie. I think the sound design does such work in making it feel real. Well, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about this idea of subliminal images. There's a big controversy or not controversy, a big conversation around this and the way that, you know, the sound design is creeping in underneath things and you're hearing one thing or you're seeing something else or, you know, and there's certain things about, oh, well, the padding around the bedpost that they're shaped to look phallic. And, you know, you're and when you see the um, Pazuzu face, like, you know, like you're seeing all these, you know, these very intentional, I think, jarring like and what we're talking about here is like keeping the audience on edge. And and I think without being graphic, the film manages to keep you ill at ease. So when something outwardly bad happens or outwardly uh, big, you 
you're already uncomfortable. So this, I know that people said, well, it's subliminal, but you know, uh, I believe that uh, William Peter Blatty said, well, there's no subliminal images. If you can see it, it's not subliminal. You know, um, but Friedkin does say, like, I used these subliminal cuts, um, you know, in my previous films, but it does help the storytelling, I think, in a horror film. And it's not just flashes. It's, I think, upsetting what we're used to in film, right? Because a horror movie should be the upending of normal life. And when you put in these flashes, you're upending a narrative that you're used to seeing. Like it, you, you don't know which way something's coming. Case in point, the priest dying. Like I was not ready for that or used to that or even knew that could be a possibility in a mainstream film. It just, it really did shock me. I hear that. I mean, well, what did you think of the scene that I think highlights the subliminal imagery maybe the most? Because, right, right, like in his later edit of the movie, in the 2000s, Friedkin went in and added more like devil face flashes, like reflecting mm-hmm. off of surfaces being in windows. But in this one, I think he has the most fun with it when Karis is having that nightmare, you know, yes. where he, he sees things. What I love about that nightmare scene is that we hear, again, the brilliant sound design, we hear him snoring over it. I think it's like the rare dream sequence scene where they're not trying to psych the audience out into being like, oh, LOL, right. that was a dream after all. They want you to know it was a dream just by hearing him breathing. And it operates in a dream logic, you know, so beautifully. Yeah. Do you think that this idea of not trusting what we see is also playing into the idea of like people don't truly understand me because Chris is looking for someone to believe her. And by putting these subliminal images in and wrestling with this idea of what is real and what's not real, you, the audience, are also as disoriented as one of the characters in the film. Like you don't, what, did I just see the devil face? Did I just see this? You know, like you don't know. And, and because your grip on reality is slightly skewed, it also, again, makes you more vulnerable and uh, to, I guess, a feel for them, but also not to know exactly what you're seeing. Is she really possessed? Is this really happening? Because it's hard to look at, look at this movie with the eyes of not knowing what will happen next as far as the possession. Like, you can't get away from this movie as a pop culture, uh, you know, you know, uh, lightning rod, like it, like everyone knows that this is the case, but I imagine as you're watching this movie the first time it plays like a drama. Is she really possessed? We don't know why she gets possessed. We don't see it. Not like she goes down and something happens. She gets hit by lightning. Like, you know, that, that, that is not fully explained. Like, wasn't like, Oh, she grabbed that statue from this guy in Iraq. You know, we don't know exactly what, is happening the Ouija board did she bring it in with the Ouija board is that what the film's saying or is it just being a kid like like yeah did she bring the ghost in because of that I mean I I love that I love those questions that you're asking because to me those questions are what make this film so special I I think you add a scene where Regan bumps into Merritt and touches his statue and the film immediately falls apart to me yeah because this is a film about the unknowable You know, and it's not a film about what's in doubt for the audience. Although maybe for you, it's like, I I never feel when I watch this movie that I'm in doubt that she is possessed. You're just in doubt of why the world would let this happen. 
You know, not like, am right. I crazy? Is she crazy? But this is a thing that is crazy. What on earth is going well, on? It's but- not... Is she having a mental breakdown because her father left her mother? I mean, she names the ghost in the Ouija board after her dad, right? Like, is this like E.T., you know, when we see, you know, the kids reacting in this way of like, you know, they're not going crazy. But like, is this is this a kid having a mental breakdown because she lost a parent? Or I mean, I again... I, yeah. I, I I believe that she's possessed, but they at least seed some issues that allow you to question it. Because I think what you're saying is we're told in a lot of modern day horror films, don't open the box. If you open the box, you'll get the thing. Go, you know, that It's very much, it is always they interacted with something they didn't know the power of, and then they have unleashed it. Whether it's Leprechaun, that movie Clown that I've talked about, uh, or, you know, or, you know, just even the, the, the Conjuring with that doll, right? Like, the idea that, like, there is, someone has done something wrong. And when someone has done something wrong, they're paying the price. Here, no one has done anything wrong. And that's what it makes it so scary. Yes. Right? That yes. is what makes it so scary. Because I don't think the Ouija board is to blame. You know, like, she's already hearing the noises in the attic, bef- like, at the start of the movie. Before, yes. I think, Regan's even found it. But I like that scene. Because when she talks about it, um, and I want to play it here, because I think in that scene, Friedkin tells us right away that something creepy is actually happening. That Regan isn't making it up. Because what you see... This is the thing I've rewound to make sure I'm not making it up is Regan brings out that. What do you call the thing in a Ouija board? I've never touched them because I'm I guess I believe in scary things. I'm afraid to touch one because I feel like if I do touch one, I actually am asking for it. So I've never Um, touched one in my life. I have touched a Ouija board. Pointer? Oh, you have touched a pointer. I have touched a Ouija board, but I don't like I don't fuck with that stuff. I don't like that. I don't like bringing anything into my life. I don't need to bring into my life. I don't need to bring into I don't even if it's a joke. I don't even like I don't even like people telling me, oh, go see this person. They they can read you. No. I don't need it. I, don't I told need you it. that story about how I cursed my ex-boyfriend, right? Like no. on accident. Did I never no. tell you this? No. This is why I like my whole life. I've had a policy of not screwing with this stuff because I believe I'm very susceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I. if I ever told a psychic, like if, if, if a psychic was like, you're supposed to have nine cats, I'd be like, well, I guess I have to have nine cats. You know, like right. it just would be in my head from that point on. I don't have nine cats. Um but this one time for the LA Weekly, I did a piece where I went to Santeria shops here because there was like a movie coming out about Santeria and I was curious about it. So I went around and I you know, kind of scoped them out, kind of like I was doing Yelp reviews, I guess, of Santeria right. shops, figuring out the vibe, how things worked in there. Like, And I went to one that looked almost more like a CVS than any of the other ones, very stark white stuff on shelves. And something in that store, I was like, oh, this guy feels like the real deal. And... Um, I decided to get like a magic candle for my boyfriend at the time because um, it was about to be New Year. So I was like, okay, here's his name. I wrote it on a piece of paper, his birthday. The guy took this candle that was supposed to bring you like good luck across the board. He brought it to the back. He did some stuff I don't know. He brought out the candle to me all wrapped up in paper. And he was like, give this to your boyfriend, light it, light it all the way down, let it burn to the bottom, wrap it back up in the paper and put it in the trash. And I was like, I can do this. But when I got home that day, I opened the backseat of my car where um, the candle was and it weird as hell rolled straight out of my backseat and crashed onto this because onto the cement of my driveway and shattered. And Ooh. I was like, what on earth? 
And so I called the Santeria shop and I was like, it broke. Is it okay to light it? And he was like, there is some bad juju around your boyfriend. Like, be careful. You have to come back and get like a more powerful, expensive candle. And at that point I was like, oh, this is bullshit. So I didn't do it. Uh I gave it to my boyfriend in a way. He lit it. And within a couple, like within two months, he basically like quit his job and disappeared and like gone, went to Mexico to become a surf bum. Like absolutely broke all ties to this earth. And I've always felt like I did something wrong. So that's why I don't fuck with that stuff. You know, I think that we are all to a certain extent susceptible to this, right? I think that, you know, as much as someone might say, like, I'm an agnostic, I don't believe in anything. I think you would see that even maybe an agnostic would fall for something like that, like a candle thing. Or, or you know, I think the idea of being cursed is more prevalent than the idea of being saved or, or having like a good luck spirit or having, you know, I think that we just ultimately gravitate more towards the bad luck than the good luck sometimes. You know, whatever. That's not a very well-researched thought. It's Ooh, just me. No, but that's you know. the opposite of what they say in Inception. Oh, good. Oh, well, that's about your dreams. That's about your dreams. I believe that. Good ideas, bad ideas. But But I do believe, I I do believe, I believe that we're, that's the reason why horror movies are so popular. I think it's like, ooh, maybe this could happen. Like there is like a, 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 a part of this and the idea that, you know, most of the people in horror movies are skeptics. Right. They are. They are like, oh, this house isn't haunted. Oh, this doll isn't this. Oh, this clown suit isn't going to possess me. I'm going to keep on dropping in references to clown. Um, But um, (laughs) there's, I think, a small part in the back of our head, like maybe, maybe, you know, and uh, and I think that is a universal fear. I think I think we all are afraid of a bigger, scarier, evil power (laughs) on some level, on some level. I mean, I think I live my life trying not to have any excuse for the maybe to slip in because I'm afraid of the maybe. I I appreciate that. And I'm sorry that your boyfriend was cursed, but it does seem like he's living a great life. I hope so. Um, Um, But that said, like in that Captain Howdy scene with the with the placard or whatever, planchard, is that what you call it? Planchette. Planchette. Uh, You see as an audience member and you can even hear it here. That the planchette moves on its own without her touching it, like right away. So you know there's something else happening. You know she's not making it up. Wait a minute. You need to. No, you don't. I do it all the time. Oh, yeah? Well, let's both play. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain Howdy, yeah, I see. nice. Oh, I bet he is. Here, I'll show you. Captain Howdy, do you think my mom's pretty? Captain Howdy? Captain Howdy, that isn't very nice. I mean, although that is kind of, why do you think Captain Howdy won't say that, that Chris is pretty? Because she's definitely pretty. Well, I mean, it's already, look, we were told that the devil lies and tells truths. So it's a little bit half and half. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like it's to get under people's skin. Of course, Chris is pretty. Everyone tells Chris that. But what if, 
we subtly get in her head. He's he's negging her. The devil's negging Chris, <laughs> you know, to make the ultimate move. It's, you know, the, the devil's the creator of the game. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, Neil Strauss Ugh. is the game. Uh, oh, the, oh, 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 I, oh, well, that, though, I have opinions on that. No, but um, <laughs> I think in a way... This is making me reevaluate some of my opinions on other horror films. I know I fought really hard for The Sixth Sense because I realized, like, well, I think it's like a Hitchcock film. It's a really elevated horror film. But then watching this movie, I'm like, well, this is better than The Sixth Sense. And not that they they share the same, um, you know, plot, but The Sixth Sense is definitely, you know, drafting off of this film. I think so much of elevated horror uh and horror in general draft off of this film and in a way we always say oh well that film deserves to be on the list because it actually does a better job of than what the original film does and and watching the exorcist i'm like it still all works like i think the exorcist is the one that should be saved over everyone because it still works and it was the first one out of the gate does that make sense it does i mean it really i think sets such a mood. And it's the kind of horror film that I think is special because, you know, it brings horror to the relatable. Like, I actually talked about this a little bit in the Halloween episode um, or in my Halloween podcast about how in the 70s you get this movement where horror steps out of things that happen in, when you're in places where you're not supposed to be, right? Like horror movies, Frankenstein, Dracula, they happen when you're going to old-timey castles. Mm-hmm. You know, Psycho happens when you're going to a motel and you're on the run and you've done something bad. Like there's a lot of setup in older horror films where the setting itself is so unusual that it is a place where madness can happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and again, like, it's like that like idea Halloween, of like you're bringing yeah. it to yourself. Like you, if... If only you didn't do blank, if only you didn't go to that castle in Romania, if only you didn't go to that hostel, if only you didn't decide to break in and rob that blind man who lives down the block. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like someone has made a choice that's a little bit suspect. I agree. And I think we like that sometimes in horror because it makes it easier for bad things to happen to these people. You're like, well, they screwed up. They shouldn't have done that. And now it's okay. VHS tape. Yeah, so now I can laugh at them as they, like, get stabbed to death. But this movie and Halloween, which comes after it, you're just living your life, man. Like, Laurie Strode's living in the suburbs. Like, Chris and her daughter are just hanging out, talking about getting a horse, you know, doing their acting things. And when horror happens beyond anybody's control, to me, that's the scariest thing of all. Let's talk a little bit about Linda Blair in this movie in the sense that You know, Mike Nichols was going to direct this film and said, I can't direct this film because there's no 12-year-old who can pull off this performance. And if this 12-year-old can, they're going to be extremely fucked up for the rest of their lives. And it's interesting because in watching this film, and I think it's a combination of two things. I think that she's actually very good, but... I also feel like Friedkin is able to direct her in a way where you don't feel it's a 12-year-old girl. Like when I'm watching her fully possessed, I'm not recoiling because I'm watching a 12-year-old girl do this. I'm recoiling because it feels like this, this evil incarnate is 
is in the world. It's not like, oh my God, uh, get out of her. Yes, that's a part of it, but it's not like, I don't feel guilty if, if that makes sense, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, You feel that same shift that Krista's like here in that scene with Karis where she's like, I know my daughter. It's almost like in that scene, like to bring it back to people talking about evidence and stuff, the evidence of being a parent and of knowing a pa- the difference between the girl that you've seen, the girl that we even meet at the beginning of the film, and this other entity. Like, you feel that, too. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept as signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You asked me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. The girl that we meet at the beginning, I love how natural Linda Blair is in this. You know, she's a little bit spoiled. She steals cookies. They like really attack her for stealing cookies. Do you do that to you? Is like tackling the new thing for do, do parents still tackle if a kid steals a cookie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I throw them to the ground. I take <laughs> that cookie out and I eat it myself. Yeah. No, uh, but she's no, like it, a believable but, kid. She's not like, a, I'm a little perfect darling. You know, that by the way, my, my son this morning, my wife left out uh, a bag of M&M's on the kitchen counter and uh, it was out there for breakfast and my little guy like sneakily went to go get a spoon for his yogurt and was like I'm gonna eat these and then just fistfold uh, a handful of M&M's quicker than I could get it and like yeah so I like you know and if I I should have tackled them I should have I wish I I wish I had the wherewithal <laughs> to tackle them down to the ground I mean she's great and it kind of breaks my heart to watch this and know how fast she grew up after you make a film like The Exorcist. I mean, the year after she makes this film, she starts dating like Rick Springfield. And then she starts dating Rick James. She's like 15 years old. You know, they start making, I found the wackiest documentary about her that like some London people did in 1974 where you're watching her, you're listening to her get described in kind of weird ways. You're seeing like clusters of just journalists all on top of her. I mean, you have to hear this just for the strange music. Once there was a small girl who liked doing outdoor things and loved animals, and when she grew up, she wanted to be a jockey or a vet. But that was not to be. Instead, she became a film star. She starred in a film that made people ill all over the world. What she did in the film was repulsive and grotesque, and the world wanted to be reassured that despite it all, she was still an angel-faced, all-American cutie. Linda, there are various rumours that you were affected psychologically by the film, um, which are no doubt untrue, but what is the situation? Did it disturb you in any way? No, it didn't at all. No, um, people, I think, just, they felt that I'd have to come out kind of with problems or something, and that's how it started. I don't know, Hmm. but no, I've... Never had any. Well, you know, 
she had to hire security guards because not only was she having that kind of rise in popularity, but she was having religious zealots saying, like, you are glorifying Satan. Like, you know, she's getting it from all sides. I think about this time, and I I have to think that Jodie Foster goes into this category as well. I mean, Jodie Foster is in, you know, this, you know, taxi driver and overly sexualized, young, and we don't really... Brooke Shields was the same way. Like, there was a time here where we were just like, they're in a movie, it's cool now, you know? it's like I mean, but I will say that... um, when I was performing at UCB, uh, Jamie Dembo was friends with the lead actress from uh, the Blair Witch Project. And she came to the theater to do monologues for this Sunday show that we did called ASCAT. And Amy, I did that show so many times. And I saw that show so many times. And you're talking about celebrities would pop in, pop out. It was It was wild. But... When she showed up, it was the only time where there were armed security. She had to almost be like picked up and hoisted out of the theater because people were surrounding her in such a way of her. I mean, and I think it's look, that movie had this idea of like, is it real? Is it not real? And all that sort of stuff. But it was amazing to see the how people responded to her. I've never seen anyone get, get, you know, responded to in that degree. Just never, never, ever. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. Is that why we didn't get more films from her? Heather Donahue, right? Like, yeah, because I think, I mean, if if our audience really rallies for Blair Witch, I'd be so happy because I love that movie to pieces. She's amazing in that movie. Like that is a hell of an acting performance. And I've always felt like we got robbed of more Heather. Well, but here's what I'm going to say about it, which is there's a weird thing when you become associated with something that is so iconic, right? Because Linda Blair had it, and I think Heather Donahue has had it. Like, these people that are cemented with an image of something that they have done, not to say they can't do anything else. It's not like saying, like, oh, well, Andrew Dice Clay, he can't play X or Y. But it, it it's almost like especially women get like kind of like funneled out. But I would say everybody in the, you know, I I was blown away that Jason Miller hadn't acted like a ton more, but then I realized, Oh, he's more of a playwright, but even, you know, his career, like I was like, this is a plum role. Like, wouldn't you want to be this? I mean, he's phenomenal in that movie. Like so believable, so good, so uh, real, but it's interesting. Like sometimes we want to almost exist in a way where we lock those people a little bit in Amber. I don't know. I don't know if that's full. I don't think that like, uh, you know, uh, Vera Farmiga is like experiencing that. I don't, you know, uh, you know, with all the, the those movies that yeah. she does. But I, I but think there's that there's something, something about being like introduced that way, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're younger. And that's when per- people first know you. Like, yeah. I mean, there's this podcast that I just absolutely love. Um, the Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus. Okay. I'm just obsessed with it. Um, And she has an episode that's on like all of the actors who have played Lolita through the years uh, and how playing Lolita sets up a thing, kind of like what you're talking about with Linda Blair, where like the press thinks they can tell you or ask anything of you. You get really typecast in the public eye. Um, And one of the side notes that caught my attention preparing for this episode 
is that she talks about um, how there was a Broadway production of Lolita and the actress who wound up performing the role for the week that it ran um, was Denise Nickerson, the actress who played Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh-huh. And this was right around the time that The Exorcist came out. And so Denise Nickerson was was like one of the people considered for this movie to play like the Regan character. And her parents read the script of The Exorcist and pulled it from her. They were like, you know what? Lolita is fine. You can play like the girl who gets molested by your stepfather. But The Exorcist is a step too far. Well, if you're I'll- interested in like actresses and top casting and all of that, you have to listen to Lolita podcast. It's all really right. one of the best things on the planet. I want to say something that is, again, a very unfounded opinion. Don't get too mad at me, uh, people who are listening. But would we, can we say that it's the equivalent of a cinematic one-night stand? We love this performance. We kind of, you know, we treat these, I'm going to say actresses more than actors because I think it happens more, especially like in the 80s and late 70s. It's like we, boom, it's like we just kind of like throw them through a system and then pop them out. Like, you know, and it's, it's, it's this idea of we get what we want from them and then just boot them out the door. Is there something about that? Because there's so many cases of that. Or is it or is it they are only phenomenal in this one thing? And and, you know, they whatever it was, the alchemy of that director, that script, that performance can't be duplicated because maybe they don't have the goods of that. And I think, you know, you see that even with, you know, not to name names, uh, to take uh, from the book of Tim Blake Nelson, who did uh, a great interview with us. Like I there you can see that with a lot of like iconic roles where people maybe pop up and then kind of disappear. I think it's this idea of being introduced and then being cast out. But for every one of them, there's a Drew Barrymore in E.T. and Drew Barrymore goes on. You know, uh, but uh, but it's not easy. It's not, not easy. easy. Not easy. Not, especially not for Drew Barrymore. She spent a long time in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's us. I think we're to blame. To be honest. So, uh, do you think that we like having cinematic one night stands? That's a term I'm going to make, and I'm going to make a T-shirt and get this out in the world and write thesis papers <laughs> on it. You know, I think we do. I think I think we get infatuated with like an image. You know, before we even use the word meme. To describe something like seeing Regan throw up pea soup, like we get these images of like a moment, an actor, a place, a character, and we won't let them go. You know, like we won't yeah. let it go more than we'll let Linda Blair do anything else. I mean, I can't even let things like the pea soup go. Like I, I, it is, I am unable to watch this movie and see the vomit as vomit. I will always see it as pea soup, knowing that it is pea soup. I will think of oh, myself, wow. oh, Regan I never just think about, ate. I didn't think about that at all. Really? I yep. always think like, oh, they just keep feeding Regan pea soup. Like I can't lose the pea soupness of it because it's just the fact about this movie. By the way, do you know that the funny thing about that is uh, in that first moment where he gets the pea soup in his eye, um, that was a misfire. That pea soup was supposed to go on his chest, but it shot in his eye. And so that look of revulsion and disgust is true to form of being puked in the face. So they only did one take of that. I just love that that was a great thing. (laughs) Uh, I wonder if it was a misfire or if it was Friedkin holding a kind of Friedkin surprise on the actor, because that was also a thing he really likes to do. I mean, A, that spitting thing reminds me of Alien, where they're like, we're going to really get shock. We're just not going to tell people what's going to happen when yeah. when um, when the alien explodes out of John Hurt's stomach. But Friedkin, 
Uh, Friedkin had this thing he would do on the set. You know how whenever the phone rings and people would jump, which I think mm-hmm. is the closest thing this movie has to a jump scare. I hate jump scares for the most part. The phone ringing ones here, I will take. Or the doorbell ringing. No, I like it because it's atmospheric. Yeah. It's like, it's also not like, ba Yeah, like, gotcha. it's not like, I'm a yeah. cat in a closet for no reason. Yeah. But the way that he would get yeah. the reactions from people when they would hear like a phone ring is Friedkin was walking around the set with a rifle loaded with blanks. And he would without warning, shoot the rifle off, and then he would use that as the reaction for a doorbell ringing. See, so the now, idea when that I bring a rifle like... on set, I get so <laughs> much grief. And they're saying, like, you're working with children. You can't have a rifle here. And I'm like, but I want to get a good reaction from the man. It's 70s was cool. Man. It was cooler <laughs> back then. By the way, speaking about... get I, All right. Let's just talk about a reaction that... I was not expecting for myself. We talk about that scene where they are going to do that procedure on on Linda Blair and the blood is like shooting out of her neck. Like that legit was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like the story behind that is Friedkin went to a hospital. He saw that being performed and he was like, oh, we're putting that in the movie. And like even the actors in that scene are not actually actors. They're the doctors who do that for a living. So he cast real doctors in those scenes surrounding her. Um, That scene of the blood, like, you know, this movie famously when it came out, people like, passed out. People had to be taken away in ambulances. One guy sued Warner Brother because he fainted and he hit his jaw on the back of a chair and he broke Ooh. his jaw. Like somebody attacked the screen. Like people went nuts when this movie it's, came out. But it's like so it's, long and yeah. so like technical that it's not like done like, oh, watch us off this toe, yeah. man. It's like, oh, oh, oh. It's like it's 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 so professionally done yeah. that it's almost more unnerving. No, yeah, that's the scene where most of the people freaked out. It's not at the devil stuff. It's just like genuine medical things that actually happen to our bodies. You see, now I I thought you wouldn't like that scene for a very different reason. Why? Well, that one of the x-ray technicians there, um, his name is Paul Bateson. In 1979, he was convicted of murder of a film critic. A film critic? Yep, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He's actually uh, the suspect of six other murders as well because he bragged about them in jail, and uh, he's the basis for the film Cruisin', directed by William Friedkin. Oh, oh my, a film critic? So I didn't know if you, when you saw, like, a a film critic killer, you were like, oh my God, I especially, it's a weightier subject for me. Well, I mean, I did think about pulling uh, a clip of William Peter Blatty on Johnny Carson talking about The Exorcist a couple weeks after it came out. Uh-huh. But the whole time he was on, he said such mean things about Pauline Kale without any sort of a sense of humor that oh, I was wow. like, oh, fuck you. Like, I just got really mad at him. And I was like, I'm not going to play you on this show. You're a jerk. I mean, blah. By the way, Peter Blatty, I don't think I like this guy. He once, like, sued Georgetown for letting uh, for letting pro-choice people speak on campus. He's, oh, he's got his whole things. Fuck that guy. But so I don't like it when people are mean to critics. That's terrible. But that, but that scene, I mean, don't you think there's like this interesting parallelism in this film? Like you have these scenes of, you know, 
two doctors entering her house, mirrored later by two priests entering her house. You have these scenes of being in hospitals and you're looking at like the implements. You're looking at kind of the wiping of her brow, the iodine on her neck. There's a kind of religiosity to the way that Friedkin films scenes of being in the hospital. And I feel like he's making you question how much does medicine even know? Like, is medicine as limited in our world as like spirituality, as like the conception of spirituality is like, are we believing in these men who are all dressed in white, kind of like priests, you know, like how, who are we uh, giving our faith to and why? And the fact that these doctors themselves, like don't have the answers, you know, there is something I think in the relationship he's trying to draw between, uh, between modern medicine and religion. There's a part of me that thought, is this about rejecting traditional Western medicine and embracing, you know, a a different idea. But I think that she approaches it and everyone approaches it like it's comical. Like, oh, you could do this thing. I mean, it's all, it's all placebo, but it may work. And, and the idea that even the priest is like, it's kind of bullshit. You know, everyone's like, it's kind of bullshit, which I think actually makes the movie more interesting that it's not like, We've done it before. Now, yes, they bring in the priest who has done it before, and he's like, let's get to work. But he's not like, he basically has about four lines of exposition. It's like, we're going to get to work right now. Don't worry about it. That is the devil in there. It's not anything else. Let's go. Like, yeah, you know, it's not he's like he's kind of clinical about it. He's medical about it. Yeah. But like, but you're right. Like, Karis is making jokes about it, right? I mean, well, jokes. He's like, well, here, he's like, get a time machine. And uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? If, um, if a person is, you know, possessed by a demon or something, how do they, how do they get an exorcism? Well, the first thing, I'd have to get them into a time machine and get them back to the 16th century. I didn't get you. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore, Miss McNeil. Oh, yes, since when? Well, since we learned about mental illness, paranoia, schizophrenia... All those things they taught me at Harvard. Miss McNeil, since the day I joined the Jesuits, I've never met one priest who has performed an exorcism. Not one. Can I ask you something? You know, the great Max von Sydow, we gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award at LAFCA a couple of years ago. And he uh, passed away, you know, last March 2002, right before the world shut down. Because of this movie, I think in the back of my head, I have always thought he was nine million years old. Oh, because yeah. he's, there are people who are perennially old. I mean, the Golden yeah. Girls I was watching as a kid, I'm like, they're still what? Like, you know, yeah. it's like they all like started shooting that when they're 42. Yeah, he's 44 in this movie. Of he's course. 44. I think as much as much as I think like the makeup on Regan is kind of it looks like one of those 80s motel paintings where mm-hmm. it's like splashes of pink and blue and green. Um, it's just more colorful, like a My Little Pony than anything like the yeah. old makeup on him is terrifying. Like, a terrifyingly real. Like, the way he moves. To me, he will always be an 85-year-old man because of this movie. Like, he was just born to be 85. He did no, his, I like, black and white stuff, who... then he was 85. And he was 85 for the next 40 years until he died. It's a good place to be, you know, look, to look that old and to be able to do it. I, I think that, like, Christopher Plummer had that, too. Like, yeah. Christopher Plummer always looked pretty old. And, and I yeah. think, you see you know, him hot and sound of music and you're like, what? Yeah, it's a whole different thing. Life is a highway. 
And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. I mean, I need to talk a little bit about Lee J. Cobb, who, I mean, he has a very small part in this movie, but I love this character too. I wanted to see like, you know, in the, in the new re-release that you were talking about, the one in 2000 where he freaking went in and kind of dressed up some stuff. I didn't see that version. I just saw the original version because I'm a purist. You know me, Amy. I'm, I'm all so about pure. pure shit. You're so pure. Um, you're pure. Like pure. Give it to pure, me. Pure. pure God, man. You're basically um, a priest of cinema. Yeah. Uh, what I loved about, uh, well, what I heard happens in the recut, the re-release, whatever you want to call it, is at the end, uh, the priest goes to the stairs uh, to look at where his, you know, fellow priest was killed. And then all of a Uh, sudden... Father Dyer, who's actually played by a real priest. Like, I think he's the first priest on film played by a real priest, Father William O'Malley. Wow. By the way, about Dyer, just like, he shows up at her house, there's a rock and party going on like he's the piano playing priest it makes me think a couple things like one for a movie star like chris has a really eclectic group of friends right she's like down with priests she's got an astronaut there for some reason she's a woman who also gets invited to the white house and there i love watching the food like a it's like a true 70s party because children are there or a child is there and everybody's like wasted well, yeah, um, that kid was supposed to be upstairs. So I at least say yeah, that, you know. Yeah. But they're like wasted. And um, the hors d'oeuvres, I was, I kept trying to freeze frame the hors d'oeuvres. It's like, what, black olives and some sort of goo. And then at one point they're eating bowls of chili. Like I've always wanted to go to a 70s party that winds up with like a father dyer sitting around mm. playing piano and everybody's singing. Like that just seems the, wonderful. There's something so funny, not to go back to Mike Nichols, when we did that great interview with Mark Harris, not to say that we did a great interview, but Mark Harris's great book about Mike Nichols and getting to talk to him about it was great for me as a fan of that book. Uh, I will say this. One of the things that I remember so clearly from that book was when Mike Nichols was shooting regarding Henry, there's a scene where it's like a party scene and they there's caviar. And Mike Nichols was like, this? You call this caviar? This is not caviar. Caviar, like, we need to do this. And he went out and sent his, like, PAs out to buy very, very expensive caviar for the entire, uh, all the extras and everybody in the scene because he thought it looked better in the party scene. And to me... That's Mike Nichols going, I've been to 70s parties. I know what we're serving. Like, it feels to me like that is, in a way, like Mike Nichols had been to those parties where there were these (laughs) things and this kind of mentality. Like, it's just such a crazy specific to get hung up on that the caviar didn't look good enough. But I mean, uh, I want to go to those parties, even if it means that, like, uh, her director friend Burke is going to start yelling at poor Carl that he's a Nazi. But then Carl does reveal himself maybe as a Nazi. No, no, he doesn't. Uh, Missionary on Mars. <laughs> Tell me, was it public relations you did for the Gestapo or community relations? I'm Swiss. Yes, of course. 
And you never went bowling with Goebbels either, I suppose, eh? Nazi bastard. Can I just say, though, I feel, I want to, when I watch this movie, I think about poor Carl's point of view. Oh, He's yeah. like, Carl I work in this house. Uh, I'm getting blamed for there being rats. I know there's not rats. Amy, like, this is the movie this... that we need to make. Let's do a Rosencrantz and Gilderstern about Carl <laughs> and and the assistant. Like, yeah, yeah I, I want to do that. Now I have, I'm, I'm sold. Everybody just dumps on Carl the whole time. He's called a Nazi. He's trying to help with the crucifix. He gets yelled at for that. He's stuck in this house. Poor Carl. Um, all right. Let me just say one thing because I love that party scene and you reminding me about that party scene just makes me appreciate how layered this film is. Like I said, the movie goes on for about an hour before. I mean, and yes, there are things going on. It's not like an hour of just twiddling thumbs, but there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is completely, um, at, you know, atmospheric and building a world and building a, you know, building out these characters in such a way that those scenes are so fun to watch. I mean, the pompousness of those moments in the party and the drunk at the party, like there's a lot of just lived in moments there. I love the house. The house is a character. I do believe the house is a character. The house is really, you know, uh, you get yeah. to see all these parts of it. You could see this as a play. Yeah, it's such a messy house at the beginning. Like, there's so much mm -hmm. clothing on the floor. Reagan's room is really colorful. And you watch the life get drained from the house. That the house turns black and white at the end. I know. Oh, and to bring me back to the point that I was making a while ago, I just to finish this thought and connect it. The priest that she is friends with who comes to the house um, is out looking at the stairwell where his friend priest has, you know, been killed. And apparently Lee J. Cobb, comes up to him and kind of has uh, a Casablanca end it moment. It does feel Casablanca, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, and, have you and... seen it? I have it. Oh, yeah, let's do it. Lieutenant, you just missed him. How's the girl? She seemed fine. That's good. That's, that's important. Well... Back to business, back to work. Bye, Father. Goodbye. Father Dyer, you like films? Sure. Well, I get passes. In fact, I got a pass to the Crest tomorrow night. Would you like to come? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason, and in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Another one. Had your lunch? No. You know, I'm reminded of a line of a film that's like At the end, all God says to Claude Rain, go eat. I just love that that like there's a part of me that goes bring on the next one let's see what we got next because I love those two characters like I love and I think you know we focus so much on the priest who is wrestling with losing faith and what I also think that we are doing in this film is opening up Lee J. Cobb's character to be like, well, maybe there's more out there. And I think there's something really lovely about his character that he loves movies. And, you know, going back to what you were saying before about 
we're talking about the misogyny or is there misogyny here? Like, there is a really interesting moment and I like it because it, it speaks to his character, but it's like that he gets an autograph from her. Like she's clearly a woman in distress and yet he is being very unprofessional in that moment to ask for an autograph of her. But yet I think he feels okay enough to do it because, well, I mean, you know, she's not going to say that. I don't think he would have done that to a man. I, he might've, but I don't think so. And they go, oh, I lied. It's actually not for my daughter. And like his fascination with film and, and it was, I love that those little yeah. choices with that character. That he gets free movie tickets somehow yes. and he keeps making up all these fake movies. And and yeah, I mean, when he asks for her autograph, it's such a good tension breaker. Yes. Which we need. I, I appreciate that the film gives us that moment because it comes right after. There's a really funny little detail right before it where you realize that she realizes that her daughter pushed Burke out of the room. Yeah. You know, pushed him out of the window, that her daughter's a murderer. And she never says it out loud in that scene. You see it only in the way when he, she finally gets him out the door, she like locks the door and has that tiny breakdown. But as she's realizing that her daughter is a murderer and she's, then the movie becomes about how can I protect my daughter from going away to jail when I don't even think that my daughter's in her right mind to have done this. He's like, she off, or she offers him a second cup of coffee, expecting that he'll say no. And when he says yes, just the way that Ellen Burstyn's face falls, like, oh, yes. God, yes. what? I'm still in this torturous conversation. That is what I love. I love this about Friedkin giving all of these characters the space. So it's not like, oh, no, he thinks my daughter did it. Like, it's not like she turns to the maid and she's like, he thinks my daughter is a murderer. It's right. all just there. Well, quietly. Wait, now, let me like bring something else to the forefront. Like when we watch Babadook and I, do you think it's OK that I'm really drawing a straight line to Babadook? Because I feel like this movie shares so much with that movie. Go for you it, know, uh, you know, there's something about it where I feel like that mother is so unstable. And there's something really interesting about Chris, which is she is more exhausted and put upon. And like, she doesn't go crazy. Like she does hold it together. And yet people who see her from the, like you can see how people see her from the outside as being maybe a little bit more crazy, but she holds firm in the center. She may be rocked. And I think that that's a really important thing. Yeah. Her through in, line in the is film. there. Like I yeah. love my daughter. I will do whatever this But takes. she doesn't break. Like, yeah. there's never a moment where you're like, oh, my gosh, she's lost it. Like, she she may be beaten down and abused and and at her wit's end, but you never question who she is at like the core of her. And, you know, it's again, it's like the, you know, I'll say, you know, I'll say it again. But like, the, you know, I think that, you know, mothers, you know, they they do so much and we got to respect our mothers. Gotta you got to respect our mothers. I mean, the way she wound up in this film like, because this movie was going to be so expensive, because there were so many eyeballs on Friedkin for the French connection, Warner Brother really tried to cast this whole movie with stars. Yes. Um, and and at every turn of the way, Friedkin was like, eh, no, no. Like, he even would he even cast, like, a star, um, Stacey Keach, and then, like, decided that Jason Miller was better and paid out all of Stacey Keach's contract to, like, have Jason Miller in the film. But they really wanted a movie star to play Chris. They wanted Audrey Hepburn at one point to play Chris, but they couldn't get the timing to work out. Um, Ellen Burstyn calls him up and she's like, I really want to do this movie. Do you know who I am? And he said yes, but he had no idea who she was. Um, she had just had her reputation of being a really good actress from being in the last picture show. 
Um, but he said that he didn't remember really who she was in the last picture show. He tended to get what her confused with Cloris Leachman in the last picture show. Um, but when he brought up the idea of having her do it to his producers, his producer said, over my dead body. And then to make his point, his producer laid down on the floor and grabbed uh, Friedkin's legs and wouldn't let him walk as a way of saying, literally over my dead body, you will not put Ellen Burstyn in this movie. Wow. And then he did anyway. Um, he like really fought for that. And I, you know how hard it is, I think, for directors to fight for that. If, if he didn't have the clout from French Connection, I don't think he could have gotten away with it. No, I but think- But he did. Like, and she's marvelous. Like this I really also, is her film. I also think- that talking about what we were talking about with The Hangover or Bridesmaids, um, I think you make the same argument for Superbad too. It's like when you're introducing the audience to people, like, yes, she was known. But I think when you look at the faces here of everybody, they feel new and fresh. It doesn't feel like some of the choices they were going to make originally. Like it was supposed to be Audrey Hepburn, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I'll do it, but you had to shoot it in Rome. And it's like, well, no, we're not going to do it. And then it was like, Anne Bancroft. And it was like, well, I'm I'm actually pregnant, so she can't do it. And then for like, you know, for some of the male parts, it was like Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. You know, it was like these big names. And I think that big names sometimes carry, it becomes a different movie. Um, and look, you know, Lee Cobb, all, all these people are working actors to a certain degree, but they're not. Lee Cobb, our juror number three in 12 Angry Men. Yes. Uh, you know, but I think that there is something about, uh, there's something about being a little bit less recognizable that you you can buy it a little bit more. Like Jane Fonda was considered and and, and turned it down. Um, you know, and this idea that if Jane Fonda's playing an actress, there's a believability there and going, oh, is this Jane Fonda doing her? You know, it, like, but I think Ellen Burstyn, I don't know. It just, I you know, like <laughs> well, you know, there, yeah. Is like the character... I think like the Chris character is basically Jane Fonda, right? right. Like, so it'd be like Jane Fonda playing Chris, who's playing Jane Fonda, like an actress with, you know, right. the haircut, an actress who's doing, what does she call it? A Ho Chi Minh Disney film? Like, because the right. film she is shooting, which maybe we should play a clip of her speech there, her one oh, scene great. as yeah. an actress, because when you look at this scene, it's like, Hundreds of people, like hundreds of extras. Karis is in there briefly. So there's some sort of a connection to the plot. You see Burke in it for a minute. But like to take the time to shoot this scene is a choice. Like you, I think this is a kind of scene you have to really fight for to get that. Like her one movie scene is going to be gigantic and on a seat with like thousands of college kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But what she's doing, it felt really relatable to today. She's doing a movie about like fighting the system, you know, about, I guess a little bit about like. Belief. Come on, we're all concerned with human rights, for God's sakes. But the kids who want to get an education have a right. Yeah, that line where she's like, you have to play within the rules, essentially, just always makes me laugh. And it, and it feels really relevant today when, at a time when we're like super impatient for things to get going. But yeah. it feels like a Jane Fonda part. Like Jane Fonda would be in the movie she's making, right? 
At that point, maybe, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, probably not the Disney version of that, but the, I would say like, and I guess all I'm saying is, and I know like what we just said, she was in the last picture show, but I don't think when you walk away from the last picture show, she's the person that you think of. And even though I called Body a Dick for saying that to her face, because I think it's rude, but, uh, but I do think that like there is something about taking some of the faces away from it. Maybe especially when you're playing an actress, because then do you separate it? Are you going, is this Jane Fonda dealing with this? Or is this Chris McNeil? And I think this movie needs to be Chris McNeil. I don't think this movie, I I don't think you need a conduit. I don't think you need to, I don't think any actor or actress, same thing with the priest. If Burt Reynolds, by the way, who is considered, shows up as that priest, like, my God. And then and, and I look, I yeah. love or early Jack Burt Nicholson. Reynolds. Jack Nicholson? Like, what? Yeah. yeah. I th- and I love these, I love these performances. And Jack Nicholson has been amazing in different things. But it's like, and, you know, and I, I, again, watch Gator. I'm a big Burt Reynolds fan. Uh, Gator is great. Uh, but, uh, but the, uh, oh, actually, not even Gator. White Lightning. That's the one that's good. Gator is a sequel. But, uh, but all I'm saying is, it takes you out a little bit more. It takes you just a little bit more out when you see movie stars, I think, in these roles, in my opinion. Um, There's something about it, and I think it goes back to your original point that you made at the very beginning, which is you see these people unkempt, you see these people beaten down. And yes, is that a part of like a 70s kind of ethos? Sure. But I think it's a lot more believable, and I think you're a lot more connected when it's not like, when the, the name The Exorcist is at the top of this movie, ultimately. You know, I think that like that's, you know, it's not like Jane Fonda in The Exorcist and, you know, or, you know, or at least at that, you know, at that point. No, I agree. I think that but I think that circles us back to what we were talking about, because it was like a role that I think immortalized these actors for us in these characters. It does get harder to escape, you know, like they are forever more. These it's almost like a you would say it's like a cinematic one night stand, right? Oh, I've heard that I somewhere. Would say, what a catchy yeah. phrase. Yeah, but I think, I think it's really that good. that Somebody idea, in that. I was actually expecting that there would be no bad reviews, which is rare. I was like, there can't be a bad review of this movie. That's insane. Oh, I um, see. I imagine there, there's a lot because it's a horror movie and yeah. what is it? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. There were a ton. And the common theme that I seemed to see in most of them was A, it was too gross, but B, that it was a movie that I think was too big for its britches. That maybe being this expensive and not having movie stars in it even as a justification, they wanted to see this movie get torn down. And in doing so, I think they said some things that are pretty dumb and pretty wrong. Um, I picked two. I'll I'll read them really fast. You ready? Yeah. So Time said, the movie is vile and brutalizing. To depict the permutations of this evil spirit, director Friedkin and writer Blatty go for cheap shocks and crude novelty. If the exorcist had been invested with any real intelligence or passion, if it had wanted to do something other than promote a few shivers, the explicitness would never have mattered. But as used here, the explicitness amounts to not much more than a shill, a come on. Freakin' and Blatty seem to care nothing for their characters as people, only as victims. Props to be abused, hurled about the room, beaten, and in one case, brutally murdered. Ellen Burstyn, a good actress who is especially adept at playing a beleaguered strength, is stuck here with an assignment that might have once sued, suited Faye Ray, look hysterical and scream. I mean, to me, that is so wrong across all of the board. And it's an insult yes. to Faye Ray, who's fantastic. But I'm like, I don't know how you can watch this film and not see the love that he has for these characters and the depth that Ellen Burstyn is investing in this role. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, look... The only thing that we've proven with these reviews is that, you know, hot takes sometimes don't age well. Hot takes get cold. 
put it on a shirt. Two shirts, one show. What else do I got? <laughs> Hot oh. takes get cold. Is that yeah, your? <laughs> that's my. That's the next one. Hot takes get cold. <laughs> All right. Well, then here's another hot take that gets cold. It's from the New York Times. Vincent Canby, a regular on this show, he called it a chunk of elegant occultist claptrap. There have been unexplained noises in the attic of George's Chris's Georgetown mansion. The devil, it seems, for all his supposed powers, cannot break and enter without sounding like Laurel and Hardy trying to move a piano. Oh. The, the Exorcist is a practically impossible film to sit through, but not necessarily because it treats diabolism with the kind of dumb piety movie makers once lavished on the stories of saints. It establishes a new low for grotesque special effects, all of which I assume have some sort of religious approval since two Jesuit priests are listed among this film's technical advisors. The producer and the director have gone whole hog on and over their budget, including the financing of a location trip to, to Iraq to shoot a lovely, eerie uh, pre prefix um, preface at an archaeological dig that is, as far as I can see, not especially essential to the business that comes after. According to trade reports, The Exorcist cost about $10 million. The money could have better been better spent subsidizing a couple of beds at the Payne Whitney Clinic. Uh, again, the, the money seemed to make people mad. And the idea that, like, this is a letdown after the Oscars. Like, you want, way, you want Friedman to make just, another French connection. And I don't just, want that. But let's just, they I mean, look, and I, like, again, hot takes get cold. Um, again, I love using that phrase that I heard somewhere else. But the idea is this movie until 2017 was the highest grossing horror film of all time. That's adjusted for inflation, of course. Until it knocked it off its perch. So in that way, it's totally wrong. Like it's to like this movie is arguably one of the most successful films of, you know, of all time, or at least in the, in the genre. Yes. Like, what is it now? It's probably like, I mean, I'm sure now after 2017, that might've been topped again, like probably get out it and this, that may be the top three. Maybe. Don't look it up. But who cares people. about money, man? It's yeah. just great. It's just great. I think it, by, I, by making a movie that I think genuinely asks you to think about your own preconceptions. Like, do mm -hmm. you think, do you think evil wins? Like, does evil win if the priests die ultimately? Or does good win that the priests are willing to sacrifice themselves? Like, well, I guess let's, let, you know, let's briefly just talk about our own two takes on that, because I think this is like a good way to kind of wrap up this episode. Is, is it like a mutual death? Like, does evil die when goodness goes down with it? It's it's sort of this, you know, uh, Terminator Two kind of an ending. You know, they gotta they gotta drop them in the in the frying pan to kind of get it all done. You know, like is there is this that one exists with the other, but if they both don't exist, then nothing's there. Yeah, like is it a film that I guess harkens back to like the history of the Catholic Church, you know, to martyrdom as being one of the ultimate ways of proving your faith. That well, yeah, right. Oh, that's it. That's interesting. I, I, you know, I couldn't help yeah. but think about that, that Norm MacDonald joke that was going around. Norm MacDonald, who passed away recently, uh, there was a joke that he did about cancer. And he's saying like, you know, oh, that so-and-so lost their battle with cancer. And he was like, oh, what a terrible way. I'm, I'm butchering the joke, but he's like, what a terrible way to like, go out like, oh yeah, you lost. That's why you're dead. You lost your battle. And he's like, but he goes, the way I think of that is, uh, look, if I'm not, if I'm not alive, uh, cancer's not alive. So we both, you know, it's a draw. If anything, it's a draw. And I feel like 
that's kind of what this movie is doing too. It's like, yeah, like it's a draw. No one won. No one won. <laughs> it, it just, it, 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 you know, they erased each other. Huh. I like that. And a salute to Norm for that, yeah. for that thought. Yeah. Well, Paul. If you want to hear me butcher more Norm jokes, you can listen to my podcast, uh, uh, Norm McPodcast. And it's a great, by the way, I will say, uh, this is not the place to talk about it, but Norm MacDonald, I think, was incredibly funny. And there's a, an amazing audiobook. He wrote an autobiography, a fictionalized autobiography, where you can't really tell where the beginning, what is true and what is false. It's stories about doing cocaine with Lauren Michaels, which is clearly not true, but then also stories about how he actually did come up. It's all weaved together. It's a brilliantly written uh, book. And if you are jonesing for a little bit of Norm MacDonald, uh, definitely check out the book that he wrote. Uh, um, it, you will truly enjoy it. <laughs> I like that. And by the way, Paul, the movie of your dreams that you were describing, where you get to see more of the uh, adventures of the cop and the priest, that's actually the movie The Exorcist 3. Um, and I will say, I once did a live podcast about Exorcist and Exor- Exorcist 3 for my old podcast, The Canon, with Thomas Lennon, who loves The Exorcist 3. It was a live show at the Overlook Festival in mm-hmm. um, New Orleans, and our episode gets crashed by, I will say, a uh, legendary horror actor who is quite terrifying. Um, All right. I, yeah, I will watch it, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not excited about this casting already. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to be the same, uh, the same <laughs> thing I need. Fair enough. Well, what are we going to do next, man? Well, that's a great question because we talk to everybody who listens to the podcast and we have decided to jump into something a little bit different, but equally scary to continue Scaretober, which is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which Ah! is I now, Amy, I don't think we talked about this online, but this is a movie that I watched one night on Criterion because I'd heard so much about it and I fell in love with this movie. Um, And I know that this is, you know, not up my alley normally, a silent film, uh, but it was, it's so enjoyable. I definitely recommend you, uh, if you're not, a, you know, if you're not like jumping and jonesing at the fact to go back and watch maybe a weirder movie that you don't know about, I think you'll like it. I think it is. Uh, it's less than an hour. It's wonderful. It's free on Tubi. Yes. I cannot say enough reasons why you should watch this yes. movie. You will see in here, if you're a Tim Burton fan, you will see the seed of everything you love in that man in this movie. It's it's really, really good. And, and you know, uh, yeah, it's I, I, I'm very excited to talk about it because... After I saw it, all I wanted to do was uh, was chat about it. Oh, so I'm so uh, excited. So that's um, next week. And because we can't play a clip of it for you since it's silent, how about we do this? Let's leave you with a little bit of the raw audio from the actress who was the voice of Linda Blair. Her name is Mercedes McCambridge. To record her double voice in character, she drank raw eggs, shotgun whiskey, and asked to be tied to a chair in a crouching position so that oh she would God. feel stress and pain. Um and by the Let's, way, just to disappoint it out, because it is a good piece of little trivia, the reason why people think that Linda Blair did not win the Oscar was because this actress made a case for it being an unfair nomination because she was the voice. Well, She's like, how can you nominate one? Like, I, we are in tandem, just like that movie with uh, Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon, where they were stuck man. together. You can't unseparate these two people. Uh, so, uh, but truly yeah. a possession. Well, yeah. here is Mercedes's raw audio. <laughs> La plume de ma tante. Mm. 
Amy, just be thankful to me that I did not play you a clip of Repossessed. You know what? As a matter of fact, I'm going to play you the trailer for Repossessed. Take a listen to the trailer. Not long ago, an entire world watched as a little girl and a holy exorcist battled and cast out the devil himself. But now, Linda Blair's been repossessed. And this is the only man who could possibly save her. I couldn't find my butt with both my hands. Linda Blair. God created man in his own image. Then how do you explain Pee Wee Herman? Repossessed. Of course I love you, yeah. Tonight, no, no. No feathers, we'll use the whole chicken. Coming soon. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.